We're starting a new series today, and uh, truth is, this has been a rough week, hasn't it? Uh, if you've been watching the news, we've seen a lot of really terrible events happening. We've seen some shootings that are very questionable on behalf of, of police in the shooting of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. We're still getting details of what happened. Protests are happening all over our nation. Um, show that next picture, if you would. Ethan, by the way, everybody give Ethan a hand. He's running slides today. Ethan's one of our students doing a good job. I don't really, well, we shouldn't clap for that image, I guess, but we're clapping for Ethan. We're appreciative of his service. You all have seen this image, right? A Dallas police officer the night of that the five police officers were shot and killed in protest for the Castile and Sterling murders or not murders, but shootings. I don't know if they're murders or not. They'll wait and determine that. Deidre and I were talking last night on the way back and from visiting some family yesterday. And she asked me if I had seen an article, the headline, it had this picture. And then the, the headline was who can heal America. And so, uh, if you clicked the link for CNN, then it opened for an, just yet another story on which candidate Trump or Hillary is going to become president as if either Trump or Hillary or Johnson or whoever may be president next can actually heal our country. And so uh, the reason I bring this up is not just because this is a timely event that's happening. It's just, it breaks, whoa, it breaks the heart. I think something just broke. Oh, it's Richard. (laughs) Richard broke. He's smiling back there. He's just smiling. It breaks the heart of our nation whenever we see these things happen. And it breaks the heart of Christians because, uh, you know, we certainly see the suffering that's going on around us. But the real truth is, is that there is no presidential candidate. Even if your favorite person gets elected, there's no presidential candidate that can heal America. There's only one person that can heal America, and that is God himself. And so as we come together, I know... I know many struggle to find words to share, and I, I'm not going to share much about this this morning. We talked about racism in, a few weeks ago, an elephant in the room, and the need that we have to be inclusive and loving of all people, no matter who they are, no matter what their background is. And the reality is, is there's no simple answer to what's plaguing our nation other than our nation needs to turn to God. I, that is the only simple answer. There is no simple systematic solution to solving the problems of our nation today. And so this is a heavy week as we mourn and we just see so many terrible uh, things happening, but yet also seeing rays of hope, hope for some responses changing. I I read an article again in CNN um, about the protests in Atlanta, whereas in Dallas they were fairly peaceful until the individual decided to kill police officers But one in Atlanta, I don't know if you read this, uh, there was a very large peaceful protest downtown and a man stood up with a sign calling for violence against police and white people. The protesters themselves silenced him and moved him out of the venue. That's a change. That's a change in the way that things are happening. And those are the types of changes that we need to be asking God to be influencing in our nation to open up conversation between people. So we'll be praying about that. That's all we really can do. Um, But we'll be praying about what's going on there. And we have to be ever vigilant about how we respond to people who are different from us. We can start with our own lives and where we live and where we are. Additionally, this morning, uh, Scott just shared with me yet another megachurch pastor this morning. It's It's being announced to their church that he has been let go of his position for poor choices in his life which is right now becoming a cascading event if you're following what's going on in churches around America. And so what, what is really happening there is we have built a system of doing church that is unsustainable by its leaders. We have made big Disney World churches that reach out to people's needs, emotional needs and wants, but yet don't necessarily satisfy what their spiritual needs truly are. We're asking men and women to lead these churches that cannot sustain the plateau that they're being put on, the pedestal that they're being put on. And so this morning we're going to be praying for New Spring Church as 
Perry Noble has been removed from his church, and we'll be praying for not only his renewal, because New Spring is a church that we have certainly tried to pattern some things after here, doing wonderful things in the community, reaching out to those that don't know Christ. Um, But we'll be praying for them as well. In all of these incidences, it just makes my heart this morning heavy, but yet what I want to talk to you about all the more important. Because as I look at these things as a pastor, as as a citizen of our nation, Uh, I feel this urgency to do something, right? Many of us feel an urgency that we need to do something. And the truth is, is that followers of Jesus feel a deep urgency to heal the world. We feel that. It is given to us by a God who drastically has taken steps to heal the world and desperately wants the world to be healed. And so as followers of Jesus, you and I are going to naturally feel an urgency to help heal the world, and yet the problem is you and I are powerless to heal the world, even though we feel this urgency. So what I want to share with you today is is uh, not um, different than what I had planned to share. However, I think it speaks even more keenly to the reality that we live in a world that we cannot control, and yet you and I have an opportunity to control how we respond to the world around us how we live in this world. And so we're going to be doing that, and um, we're going to be doing that as we go through the letter of Philippians, Paul's letter Philippians. Now, we are, have talked through Philippians before in the past, um, but I want you to know that we're going to do it a little differently this time. Philippians is literally a letter that Paul and Timothy wrote. Paul really wrote it, but he included Timothy to a church that was getting it. To a church that Paul said, you are getting what's going on. Now, if you are a fan of Paul and you've read any of his letters, what you have discovered is he doesn't always write encouraging letters to churches. There are times his letters have very sharp barbs and he has very specific purposes for writing because they are imploding. They are making terrible choices and he feels the need to step in. But this is a letter that is so full of encouragement because Paul sees kindred spirits who understand the mission and our, he is just he is trying to encourage them. Now we're calling this a digging deeper study series. Now I, that may change what we call this, but we're plan on this being an ongoing series of series, if that makes sense. We plan to do multiple book studies like this, not run right after the other, but we plan to go through several books, helping you to dig deeper in your own personal study, because it's not great that we come to to church and we get the majority of our study here. Um, if you are getting the majority of your Bible knowledge and your majority of your growth as a Christian happens on Sunday mornings inside this room or inside another church room, then you are missing out on what it means to truly follow Christ. And instead, we want to empower you and give you tools so that you can, even if you can't be here, you can get more out of Scripture than you would get out of here. And so that is what our hope. And so we have two primary goals through this series. One is to study through Paul's letter to the Philippians. That is certainly a goal, and we intend to do that well. And the second is to help you get some tools so that you can get more out of your own study of Scripture. Now today, in order to do that, I'm going to be giving you a lot of background. I'm going to be talking a lot about how we're going to do this. And then we're going to go through the first part of Philippians. Um, But I'm going to be spending a lot of time setting up the next several weeks that we go through this. And so if you have a Bible, great. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on YouVersion. Um, I would encourage you through this series to actually bring a Bible with you. Um, Even though we normally don't do that here, I would encourage you to bring one with you. And I'm going to even make some suggestions if you want to go purchase a Bible in the future. The truth is, as we look at getting something out of this book, it's not as simple as just picking up a cookbook or a how-to manual. And at times, even an Ikea user manual is better than the Bible when we have to put something together. It would be great if we could just pick it up and it was a a bullet list of things that we're supposed to do for the day. And if we have any problems or any issues, we just look up that issue and it just gives us a three-step plan on what we're supposed to do. But that's not how Scripture is given to us. That's not the way God works in us. And even though we often try to get some formula to make things easier, the truth is that is not the way God works in the life of a follower. 
The reason we want things to be easy is because we want to spend as little time on those things so we can spend our time on other things we enjoy more. But instead, what God says is, I will open up the secrets, the mystery of what it means to know him and to see his work in this world if you will take the time to discover it. So we're going to go through several things um, today, and I've got a lot that I want to share with you. I want you to know that there are some passages that we can read through, and there are some passages in Philippians that we can just read it, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. It is what it is. It is what it says, um, and, and that's great. But there are also some that we cannot read without trying to understand the context of the passage or the culture that's going on in that scripture. As we read through this, we have to understand that the Bible did not come to us in the English language, right? Sometimes some of us think it did. Jesus spoke English. I always like to see an a, a ethnic TV show or movie where all the characters are obviously from another nationality, yet they all speak English like they grew up here. That's always enjoyable. It always makes sense. Whenever we read, the script, we read Scripture, sometimes we read it thinking, you know, this was written by God in English, so that should be easy for me to understand. And yet what we discover the more we understand history, history of Scripture and history of God's work among us is that God never spoke English. Instead, most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And if you really want to rattle the way that you read Scripture, start trying to read Hebrew, and you'll find out not only does it not look like English, not only does it not use English letters, it's not even written left to right. If you get back into some of the older texts, you'll find no punctuation. You'll find no place where it tells you where one thought ends and one thought begins. And instead, what you begin to have to do as you read through Hebrews, you have to begin to understand sentence structure and how the words come together and how many times something is repeated as... We don't have exclamation points. Instead, we have something said over and over and over, which is essentially a Hebrew exclamation point. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, most people cannot open a Greek New Testament and understand anything that it says. And yet we open our English Bibles thinking that this is exactly what God said, and I need to read it in a 2016 context. And then we get frustrated that we have different interpretations and we can't come to an agreement on what something means or what God wants us to do. The problem with just reading Scripture in general for us is that Paul in Philippians has written to a specific group of people about specific circumstances within a specific cultural context in a language other than English. And so if we just open it on a day with our latte, casually reading through, we may miss what is really going on. It takes a little more depth. It takes a little more time. Now, with all of that being said, one of the things that I have never been a fan of is trying to make reading of Scripture academic. You have to have a degree to understand Scripture. You have to spend hours and hours and hours and thousands of dollars of study tools in order to get something out of the Bible. I, I've never believed that, and I don't think God would ever want us to believe that as well. However, it's important for us to understand we cannot just read it with our current context. You know, what would be fun is if we split the room, and we'd have to split it into several different groups. But let's say we put our, our teens over in one corner. And then let's say we put some of our more senior members in another corner and ask them to come together and to explain what life is really all about. How many answers do you think we would get? We would get a lot of blank faces, right? Or just bring them together and have a conversation about how you, what it means to be a child. Depending on where you come from, even with just a few years difference, There's a drastic difference in the way you see the world, right? Now, how many of you guys, I won't ask my kids, you all don't answer this, but for the rest of you guys up here in the second row, how many of you think your parents just don't get it? That's a smart group right there. Okay, we got a few that are brave. I I told you not to answer. But now here's the thing. We're talking 20 years difference. And every one of us thought our parents never did not understand the world like we did. And we're talking 20 years difference. 
And yet most of Scripture is thousands of years old. All of Scripture that we read is thousands of years old. Some of it many thousands of years old. And so it's important as we approach any study, whether it be one of the Gospels, whether it be Philippians, whether it be one of the more difficult studies like Romans or one of the prophets, it's important for us to understand things change in 2,000 years. However, there are some things that don't change. Human nature doesn't really change. The desire to live and to love, to have a family, the desire to be happy, those are things that can follow us. But also the ability to self-destruct follows us through the ages as well. So there are some things that don't change and we trust in the reality that people are at its core the same in the beginning and today and tomorrow. So there are some things we can trust, but we still need to understand there is a difference in what was happening in their lives at this time and what's happening in our lives now. Now, some of you are already stoked and excited and some of you are ready to go to lunch already. So I want you to stick with me. Because I believe that what I'm going to share with you in these next few minutes will make a difference in your life and in your study. There are three basic needs if you're going to do a, a deeper Bible study. All right? Three basic needs. If you're following on version, then you can see some of these. I've got these on slides in version. If not, if you want to write these down, you can. Or some of you already know these three things. There are three basic needs for deeper study. The first one is a relationship with Jesus. Whenever we allow someone who doesn't know Jesus to explain to us what Scripture means, we recognize this person has yet to have an experience with the Holy Spirit. What Scripture tells us is the Holy Spirit has many roles in our lives. But one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is to open up Scripture. And Scripture literally tells us you cannot understand Scripture without the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. So right here in the beginning, if you are a person who has yet to ask Jesus to be your Savior, if you're a person who has yet to have a relationship with Him, then there are some things you can certainly grasp and read. But the deeper mysteries that are contained in Scripture will not be open to you unless the Holy Spirit is there to speak them into your life. That is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you get uncomfortable when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Some of you, your life depends on the working of the Holy Spirit every day. I come from a background that we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. And many of our hymns, we called it the Holy Ghost. And often when the Holy Spirit was talked about, it was always a caution against using some of those crazy spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit does, like speaking in tongues and miracles and things like that. And what I discovered as I grew in my faith is that without the Holy Spirit, if we try to marginalize the work of the Holy Spirit, we marginalize the work of God in our lives. So ultimately, to truly uncover some of the mysteries that God wants you to uncover, you have to have a relationship with Jesus. Number two, and this is where you are blessed so much more than those about that we are reading about, is that you have to have a good Bible translation. Now, I call it a translation because some of you, let's just yell out, what are some of the versions that you all like to read? Yell them out. KSV? KSV? Yeah. What's KSV? There you go, okay. I haven't heard of that one. ESV and KJV. I think those are the two you're talking about. All right. What else? New Standard American, New American Standard. Anybody else? NLV. New, the new NLT, New Living Translation. There is the Living Bible that came before the New Living. Uh, so lots of different translations in the room. Anybody still read the, the King James? Yeah, a few of you still read the King James. You're the true Christians in the room, right? Amen, Amen brother. I can't remember where I was driving the other day, and I, it said on the sign, this is a King James Version-only church. I thought, wow, okay. So some of you may have come from that background. I grew up reading the King James Version. As soon as the, I got my hands on an NIV, I went nuts. I was like, I can actually read this thing. So here's the thing about reading, having a good Bible translation is you have to understand we need a translation. Now, sometimes I need a a translator for my children. Amen. Sometimes I need a translator to understand what they're saying. And sometimes they need a translator to understand what I'm saying. And we're just 20 years apart or so, so. maybe a little more than that. 
A translation is someone who has taken those original languages and has said, I, I am going to take this and make as much as I can a translation from the original text. They're looking at the original text as early as they can get their hands on, and they are transcribing that into English. Now, that's a translation. In many of the translations that you have mentioned, that is exactly what you have New American Standard is a translation. The English Standard Version is a translation. The New Living Translation is a translation, though the Living Bible before it was not a translation. It was an interpretation. An interpretation is where someone has taken as many English versions of the Bible as they can, and they have said, okay, this is what they have said and translated it into English, but I think this is what it means. That's an interpretation. Do you know what the most famous interpretation is that no one believes that it's interpretation? Is the King James Version of the Bible. King James Version of the Bible has always been assumed to be a translation, but it is not. It is an interpretation. If you were to go and read an original version of the King James Version, the translators at that time would write their own preface to in the beginning of the Bible. And in that preface... They said, this is not a translation. We, they, what they literally took were all of the best of the English translations at the time, which included things like the Great Bible, Matthew's Bible, lots of other Bibles that they had. Some of them were not even translated from the, liter- from the original languages, but instead were translated from the Latin. And they said, this is an interpretation. And the purpose of the King James Version was so that everyone could have this Holy Scriptures in their own native tongue. It's a wonderful reason for the King James Version to come into existence. What has come since then, and those that believe that only true Christians read King James Version, is completely against the whole purpose that it was created in the first place. So you need a good translation. Interpretations are great. An interpretation would be like the message. Anybody like the message? I love the message. I just discovered this week there's a new message out called the Message 100. The Message 100 is a chronological version of the message, which means if you read your Bible you'll, and you're trying to read from what happened first to what happened last, some people think that's the way the Bible's written. Genesis is first, Revelation is last, right? But instead, your scripture is not broken down based on what happened first in a chronological order. It's broken down into types of literature. That's why you have wisdom books. You have the prophets together, the minor prophets together. That's why the gospels are packaged together. The epistles are packaged together. They are broken down by type of literature. So literally, some of the books, if you read them in order, will be out of order based on when they happened. The message 100 is an interpretation that puts it back in chronological order. Some of you may have a chronological Bible. And instead of going Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, although those are, for the most part, chronological, your Bible has your books ordered differently because it breaks it down into what happened in a timeline, okay? You've got to have a good Bible translation. We don't care what you use here. We use, for the most part, ESV whenever we teach, but we also use New Living Translation, sometimes NIV. We use all kinds of things. Sometimes the message... We use all kinds of different translations because they all add. But for good Bible study, you need to have a good Bible translation. And the third thing is this, access to additional cultural and historical information. This is where I don't want to lose you. I want you to hang in here with me. You need to have a place to figure out what is happening at this time. If you read these scriptures... Reading them in a 2016 context, you will often miss what is really going on. If you read it by a group of people living in a democratic society, you will miss what is going on. If you read it from a group of people that, for the most part, have the freedom to do whatever they want, you will miss often what is being taught in these scriptures. And it's one of the reasons that American Christians struggle to to stay true to their faith in hardship. It's because we have read it in an American context, not in the historical, cultural context it was written. We've made certain assumptions about God, certain assumptions about being a Christian that just are not true. Some of this extra material you did not grow up in learning. Some of you, when you got out of history class, you didn't actually learn the things you got graded on for that semester. Amen? 
I don't remember what we studied in there, right? If you go ask a number of people today who the first president of the United States were, they would not know. Some people don't know who the existing president of the United States is, right? So a place to go and learn those things is crucial. Now, does that mean in order to have good Bible study, you've got to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on a a library that's got to sit in your your library somewhere? Because we all have libraries in our house. The answer is no. In fact, Deidre and I have just come to an uncomfortable realization. I've got tons of books boxed up, and we're trying to get them out into the house so we can use them again. And so I've been looking for some decorative bookshelves to put in the house that don't just look like your old standard bookshelves. Do you know how hard it is to find a bookshelf today? If you want to go find a nice piece of furniture that you can put books on, good luck. Because people don't read books anymore. I don't have a whole lot of new books. Most of the new books are on my tablet. So you don't have to have this huge library. But I do want to give just a few caveats or a few suggestions for you to make when you're getting started. And the first one is this. How many of you have a study Bible? All right. What kind of study Bibles? Just yell them out. I, what, what was that? Same again. NIV, 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 one year, lots of NIV study Bibles. That's been around a while. What? NLT study Bible? Okay, all right. Uh, Those are great study Bibles. What a study Bible does is help you to know some of the basic facts about the Scripture that you are learning. Now, what I have here is the ESV study Bible, which is a great one. I've got some others up here, and I'm going to leave them up here if you don't want to come after and you look at them. Here's a very popular one. This is the Life Application Study Bible. I've got, my mom just gave me these. She buys Bibles like crazy. They love her at the bookstore. <laughs> and then she doesn't read them, so she gives them to me. So it works out for me. Transformational Study Bible by Warren Wiersbe. This is an archaeological study Bible. And it gives you study notes about some of the archaeological finds since the writing of the Scripture. So there's all kinds of study Bibles. Y'all can look through those. That's another ESV study Bible you can look through. And I would encourage you, if you don't own a study Bible, to get one. Uh, yesterday, I went into Lifeway just to see how much will it set you back if you've got to go buy a study Bible. You can literally get a paperback ESV study Bible right now, 40% off. I'm not getting a cut either for this, but... 40% off, like 20 bucks. And with that, you get a code that you can go online and you can read the whole thing online as well. So 20 bucks, you can have a study Bible. And the reason that these are good is because they help us see what's going on in the passage before we read it. Now, each one's a little bit different. Life application is going to talk more about how do you apply, how do you act on the scripture that you're reading. But most of the other study Bibles are what are the historical and contextual details that you're reading. You can get commentaries. You can get, you know, something like a Matthew Henry's. It's in one volume. Or you can get some, you know, if you're really serious, like a word critical commentary will set you back about 1500 bucks, but it'll tell you everything you ever wanted to know. So there's all kinds of things you can do. I would encourage you to start with a study Bible. And I would tell you that there are six basic questions. I don't stay with me. Now, this is exciting stuff for a pastor. I know it's exciting for you too. Six questions, and then we're going to jump into Philippians here while it's, while it's time to go. <laughs> Six questions that you need to ask for every time you study Scripture. And I'm telling you, if you'll do this today, it will change the way you study Scripture and what you get out of it from this day forward. The first one is this. Who's writing the letter? Very simple. Or, or the book. Who's writing this? Who is it? What can you learn about this person for who is writing it? The second is... Who are they writing it to? In our instance, it's Paul. Who is Paul writing to? It's important to know what they're saying. If you wrote the same letter to two different friends, would you get two different responses from those friends? Possibly. Who are they writing to? It's it's important to know who is receiving this. It's also important to know what is he saying? What is he actually saying? Is it something I can just read it and and accept it? There are lots of fun passages in Scripture that we do not just read and accept. One being, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We don't do that. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We don't do that. 
So reading through, what is he actually saying? The fourth question is simply this. Why is he saying it? This is where culture and context come into play. Why is he saying it? The fifth, one of the most important parts of this, what is the transferable principle? What is he saying to them that I need to understand exactly what and why he's saying it to them that is meaningful for me today? What does God want me to get out of this today? It's a transferable principle from 2,000 years ago to today. And the last one is how do we apply that principle to our lives? So that's what we want out of Scripture. Scripture is not meant for us to simply grow in knowledge. It's meant for us to grow in love of others. It's meant for us to grow in knowledge of who God is, but it's important that we grow in knowing Him, not just knowing about Him. So as we look through Philippians, I'm going to go through this. I've given you a ton of stuff already this morning. As we look through this, who is writing this letter? Paul and Timothy is writing the letter of Philippians. As we understand, if you've got a study Bible, some of the things you'll be able to pick out is uh, some of the life story of Paul. Now, you may not get all of this, but if we look through and we understand who Paul is, Paul and Timothy literally partnered together on his second missionary journey. Paul went on four different mission four, that's five, four different missionary journeys. <laughs> he went on four different missionary journeys. On the first one, he met this guy named Timothy. On the second one, Timothy went with him. On the third one, they expanded their territory. And on the fourth missionary journey, they went all the way out to Rome, where Paul ends up in prison. Now, the reason it's important to understand all of these facts before we get into Philippians is to understand that as we look at the overall theme of Philippians, it is the most encouraging letter you will find in Scripture. And yet it was written while Paul was in prison awaiting his death. So when we begin to talk about joy, we will often quote Philippians, but do we often think of joy in the worst circumstances of our lives? Because that is the foundation of this letter. Paul was not sitting drinking a latte, sipping macchiatos with his favorite church buddies. He wasn't daydreaming about what he was going to do tomorrow. He was in prison being denied a trial. And he wanted to write a letter to a group of people that he loved. We know that Paul was born approximately 5 A.D. We know that his conversion was approximately 34 A.D. That means Paul became a Christian when he was 29. One of the things you'll discover if you read a study Bible or if you have other resources to read, you'll discover that this letter, Philippians, was written around 60 A.D., which makes Paul right around 54 years old. And he's been a Christian now. For about 25 years. So this is where Paul is writing. He made these four trips. Would you put that next, uh, put that first map up? Some of you will see this. You can't really see it. The contrast on our screen. But these are all the places that Paul went. The little black lines over here was his first missionary journey. And then he goes, I think, I think it's purple is the second one. Purple, you'll see spreads out a little farther. Green spreads out even farther. The green is his last one where he actually visits Rome. Go to that next map. You see that circle? You see the boot for Italy? Some of you already have forgotten everything about geography. The boot is Italy. What's right beside Italy? I told you you didn't remember geography. It's Greece. First Olympics that are about to, uh, Olympics are about to happen. Right there in that circle is where Philippi is, right there around Greece. It's a real place. It actually happened. It's not this figment of our imagination. It's not just some place that magically appears in Scripture but does not appear in real life. It's a real place. There are people that still live there. And there are remnants of the church that still exist in Philippi. So he's, who is he writing his letter to? To this church. He visited Philippi and started a church there. And from the time that he started the church in Philippi, it was the very first place he visited in Europe, they began supporting him. And he fell in love with them, and they fell in love with him. So along the way, we're going to discover 
that when Paul's in prison, this church actually sends him someone to help him. His name is Epaphroditus. We'll read about him later. But Epaphroditus comes and not only cares for him, we find out that Epaphroditus gets sick. He almost dies. And the church that sent him is scared to death for him. And so Paul is writing to say, you know what? I so appreciate Epaphroditus coming to visit me, but he is fine. And he's going to come back home to you. So who's writing the letter? Paul is with Timothy. We'll read that in the first couple of verses in a minute. And uh, we can see the people that he is writing to. So let's look at Philippians 1.1. I'm going to go through this kind of quickly because this is mostly introductory stuff. Philippians 1, 1 and 2 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read that, you'll find in every one of Paul's epistles, epistles his letter, every one of his letters, you'll find that Paul opens them almost identically. And you have who wrote it, you have who it's written to, And then you also have a greeting. And his greeting was different than most. He would always say grace to you and peace. There are two different kinds of epistles. This is more information than you want to know, but I'm going to tell you anyways. There's formal and informal. The difference is we need to talk. And, hey, I just want to talk to you. There's two different types of letters. The formal one is where we need to talk. Letters to Galatians, letters to Ephesians, letters to Corinthians, letters that, hey, you guys are screwing up and you need to stop. Those are formal. Letters like Philippians are informal. I just, I just, wanna, I just have some stuff I want to tell you. They're not systematic. They're not formulaic. He's just speaking off the top of his head. As we read through this, if you were reading a life application Bible... Some of the things that you would read in the notes of a life application study Bible. This is what it says about the first two verses. It says, we get upset at children who fail to appreciate small gifts. Yet we undervalue God's immeasurable gifts of grace and peace. Instead, we seek the possessions and shallow experiences the world offers. Compared to the big and bright packages of our culture, grace and peace appear insignificant. But when we unwrap them, we discover God's wonderful personal dealings with us. Inside the tiny package marked grace and peace, we find an inexhaustible treasure of God's daily presence in our lives. Using these two words in his greetings to all the churches to whom he wrote, Paul wasn't offering something new. He was reminding his readers of what they already possessed in Christ. Thank God for his grace and live in his peace. That's an something you would get out of a life application, whereas some of the other study Bibles would give you more just details of translation. So different types of Bibles for different types of information. As we read on in in verse 3, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, he's already saying it's Paul and Timothy writing to the church. Yet what we know is that Paul wrote the letter, but Timothy was a significant figure in the church in Philippi. So he wanted to include Timothy in his greeting. Philippians 1, 3 through 11 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And in this introduction, he's telling them why he's writing. This is a letter he never anticipated that was going to be read by us today. This was simply something he wanted to tell these specific people. The overall themes that you're going to find throughout Philippians are themes like joy, suffering, humility is a huge one in Philippians, unity, another huge one, and also what does it look like to authentically follow Christ. Those are all themes you'll find throughout the book. Many study Bibles will break out themes. Not all of these are written are listed. 
But those are some of the things that I see in this letter. So we've answered the question of what are they writing or who is writing? Who are they writing to? Why are they writing? What are, or excuse me, what are they writing? And then we move into why is Paul saying what he's saying? What we read through this is Paul literally loves the members of this church. He loves them because they've been with him in his imprisonment, and they've also been with him as he has shared and defended the gospel for others. He wrote it because he wanted to encourage them because he knew that when you authentically live out your faith, you are going to become discouraged. There are not people standing in line to say you are doing a good job as a follower of Jesus. Instead, what we find are lots of people telling us we're doing it wrong. We're not being good Christians. That's not the way Jesus would do it. Well, I know what you're really like. You're a hypocrite. Those are the things that people hear because we're still broken people. Yet Paul knew they needed to be encouraged for the lives that they were leading, even in the midst of their brokenness. He wants to share his thankfulness for their partnership, especially in prison. But also, he wants to make sure that they continue to grow in their faith, which is where I'm going to finish up with today. When Paul begins to talk to them, not only does he open with how thankful he is for them, but he also tells them, do not stay where you are. He says, I yearn for you all that you would lo- that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, that you would approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul was always challenging his churches. If you get stuck, if you want to stay where you are, then you are going to drown. Continue to grow and continue to move. So what is the transferable principle that we can take from this? I'll be honest. You've got to do some digging on some of these to understand if you're going to read just a piece like we are today, what is he trying to say? Really, we should probably go through the next several verses for us to really get the true transferable principle. And yet, there is always a place where we can discover what Paul is saying that we should apply for our lives today. What is the transferable principle from this passage today? Literally, I believe it's this, to grow in faith and love through knowledge and discernment, you must continue to be filled by the righteousness that comes from following Jesus. That's a long one, isn't it? That's a long transferable principle. We're going to, we need to grow in love through knowledge and discernment. We have to continue to be filled by the righteousness that comes from knowing and following Jesus. That is what it means to follow. Paul knew that's where the church needed to go because they could just as easily turn into something else. So how do we apply this principle to our lives today? This is where things get a little difficult. Okay, we go through and try to understand the context and the culture. Paul is so thankful for them, and he wants them to continue to grow, continue to be a blessing for others. But what do we do with this? We didn't send anybody to help Paul. We're not sending anybody to a prison to do anything. So how do we apply this to our lives? And the first question I always ask myself is, well, how did they apply it? What did they do with this information? How did this motivate them? Or what would have motivated them based on what we have read? And what we can know is based on what Paul tells us is that they were constantly focused on the gospel. They're constantly focused on not only sharing the gospel, but demonstrating it in their actions. Supporting Epaphroditus to go and to be with him. To continue sharing the gospel in their own community and living it out by loving each other and loving others. They were committed to showing love in tangible ways, right? Let me ask you, how can you today love others in tangible ways? Just think through that for a minute. How can you love others through tangible ways? Most of us spend our lives just trying to get through the day, right? We see somebody in need and we think somebody ought to help them. But what are some tangible ways that we can show love to others? Right now, I'd love to be able to show love to New Spring Church, but there's really nothing I can do there. Today, I'd love to go to Dallas, and I would love to just hug and encourage these families who have lost the men in their lives. 
I would love to just go to the communities where Alton Sterling was killed and and Philando Castile was killed. I would love to go and offer an opportunity to encourage and healing. But that's not my place. I don't have that opportunity. If I go, they're going to go, what in order are you doing here? But there are other tangible ways I can love where I'm at. So how do we love others in tangible ways right here? What I also see in their lives, based on what Paul tells us, is that they were not content with being comfortable with where they were living. And instead, they were focused on Christ and following Him and where He told them to go. So what is the transferable principle? To grow in faith and love through knowledge and discernment, you must continue to be filled by righteousness that comes from following Jesus. So how do we apply that last question, this principle, to our lives today? We read through these things and we try to figure it out ourselves. If they were constantly focused on the gospel and living it out, how am I constantly focused on the gospel and living it out? That's a question we each have to ask ourselves every day. What role does the gospel play? Is it a part of my story where now I'm a Christian and one day I'll go to heaven? Or is the gospel something I'm trying to live out each day, recognizing there are other people who don't have the gospel in their story and they are not going to go to heaven? What is my responsibility to them? What is my responsibility in the way I carry myself and I talk? Do I look at my actions through the lens of how the gospel is being shared or do I look at my actions based on my freedoms to be whoever I want to be? Those are two different ways of living life. They were focused on the gospel and living it out. Whenever I get mad at somebody, does the gospel become the filter by which I act? Or is that just part of my story that I'm glad he's going to forgive me for what I'm about to do to you? Two different ways of living out. Right? How can we show tangible love? How can we live the gospel out? It's the second, be committed to showing love in tangible ways. I would encourage you, if you want to take a transferable principle this morning and you want to apply this and have it make something meaningful in your life, would be to ask yourself, how do I at this moment love others in a tangible way? Now, it's not always an easy question to ask because we are really good at hiding our needs from others. We don't want people to know when we need to be loved. We don't want to show people what ways we're hurting and Ways that we can receive healing from others. We, we, we put these masks on that say everything's okay. And so there's no way to walk up to a person and have a little label on their chest that says, this is how you can love me in a tangible way today. It's not going to happen, although that would be a whole lot easier. Instead, we build relationships. We learn who people are. And we begin to discover ways that we can love them. Sometimes it's easy. You walk up, you see a mom who's frazzled trying to get something for her and her young child and she's forgotten her wallet. A tangible way is to pay for them so they can have it. There are tangible ways to encourage others. You know, someone's just gotten chewed out at work rather than getting by the water cooler and saying, did you see they got chewed out? That was awesome. Instead, we go to them and we encourage. See, the gospel requires us to act differently than the world. And whenever we read Scripture, if it doesn't move us to act differently than the world, then we're doing something wrong. They also didn't see their lives as a place to grow comfortable. How, what does it look like for you in your life, for me in my life, to refuse to grow stale in not only living the gospel but studying His Word? What does that look like? See, much of Scripture requires the Holy Spirit speaking into us. See, He knows me. He knows you. He knows the times that he needs to say, Mark, this is what you need to do because you are off track. He will do that when you have a relationship with him. And he will reveal more succinctly and more specifically ways you can apply his word to your life. So finally, this is what I would leave with you and I would encourage you. I hope you'll come back next week. I hope I haven't bored you to death. Although I've had a really good time up here. What I would leave you with is that we grow in faith and love when we passionately pursue Jesus and live out his gospel and teachings.
That's how we grow. We've got to passionately follow him and live out his teachings. The gospel was the reason that he was here. And so that has to be the focus of the way we live our lives. Philippians became a church that changed the course of Christianity in the world because of their love and care for Paul. That's what happens when a group of people follow as he did and becomes a church that gets it like Philippi did. They change the world around them. And so that would be my prayer for us today. In the next few weeks, you're not going to get quite as much information on study tools and translations and things. If you want to listen to that again, you can get the podcast and you can play it over and over to your heart's delight. But over the next few weeks, we will be using those six questions as a basis to go through the rest of Philippians. And I hope along the way that you are going to grab a study Bible if you don't have one. Come up here and look through some of these if you want to. And that you will begin to take your study of Scripture far more deeper and seriously than maybe you ever have before. So you're already doing this, that's fantastic. And you're already experiencing the beauty of hearing God speak into your life every day. But if you're not, I encourage you, take those steps to dig deeper in your own study. Let us be a church like Philippi. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you that you have given us your word in a way that we can so easily have access to it. I pray that you would forgive us that we have made our lives so much about us that we have forgotten to make it a priority to not only study and know your word, but to live it out. I pray that as we open our Bibles, it would not simply be to read a few words and then go about our day, but you would open it up and make it alive, that we could see what was going on in these lives, to imagine Paul sitting in that prison day after day, sitting against that cold, dark floor and not having anybody there to encourage him. I pray that you would help us to begin to understand what joy looks like, not when everything's going well, but when everything's falling apart. That there's something that is open and available to us through Christ that is not dependent on our circumstances. Father, I pray that you would help us to see churches like Philippi and be able to to begin to get a glimpse into what was going on in their lives and their motivations and the way they spent their time and their resources. We can not only learn from that, but we can apply those into our own life. Father, I pray that you would help us to not only know your word, but that we can absorb it into our lives and we can live it out so that others can see a difference. I thank you for your love. I thank you that we do have grace and peace today. And I thank you that we have Jesus Christ in our lives. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.